0: Well, good morning, Pillar Church. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. And as always, it is a joy and an honor to open up God's word with you. And it feels so good to be back this morning. We're going to have the last of our sermon series in the Advent series. And so I want to start off this morning by saying some names. I want to say some names, some names, of some people and some names of some things And I want you to consider how you feel when I say these names. Okay, now, don't say anything out loud. Please don't say nothing out loud. We don't need that smoke. Don't say nothing out loud. But I want you to do is just consider, seriously reflect on what these names evoke in you. What do these names evoke in you? Okay, you ready? You ready for this? Kobe Bryant. The government. Malcolm X. Donald Trump. The New England Patriots. Black Lives Matter. COVID-19. The good old boys. R. Kelly. These names, these things represent emotions for us. They represent joy, sadness, admiration, fear, anger, disgust, hatred, betrayal, love. Names provoke us, and these names provoke you. We naturally emote feelings when a given name of a person or a thing is brought up. Maybe that person or that entity, that thing loved you well as a child. And so when you hear that name, you get the warm and fuzzies all inside because of their love for you. Maybe they hurt you as a child and your blood boils at the mere thought of them. Whichever the case may be, you get in your feelings when somebody brings up certain names of people and certain names of things. But for most of us, the most feeling is evoked within us when the names of things and people are brought up that have had major impacts on our lives. I want you to think about that school teacher who told you that you were dumb and that you would never amount to anything. See, what that did to some of us is it gave us an approval-based work ethic. what about that, that first time you fell in love and you gave that person the key to your heart? You told them the most intimate and secret things from deep within you. You revealed and exposed all of your shame and your hurt and your brokenness to this person. You gave them the key to your heart because you love them. And what did they do? They they, they took the key, opened it up and stomped all over that mug. And now that gives you a wound-based independence. There's some of y'all out there. We have a wound-based independence. Or what about that person Or those people or those shows or those magazines that directly or indirectly make fun of your body composition and they shame you physically because you do or don't look a certain way. And so now you have a shame based health kick. Or what about that close family friend or maybe it's a a family member? who that because of what they did, things will never be the same, whether it's better, whether it's it's for the better or for the worse. But because of what they did, things are forever now different. Think about that person. In the hearing of those names, they do something to you. They should trigger you. They should move you. They should provoke you. What name provokes you at this particular stage of your life? The name of a person or the name of a thing. What provokes you at this particular stage of your life? And I'm serious, consider that reality. You got that thing in mind? You got that name, that person, that thing that provokes emotion within you? How you feeling right now? How do you feel? Well, in this morning's text, we're going to see The same feels and emotions, these same realities. We're going to see the hearts of men triggered and provoked. Some for better and some for worse. Yet at the center of it all, there's a child who was born king. And this king has major implications on my life and on your life. Whether you like it or not, whether you admit it or not, or whether you acknowledge it or not. You see, there was a man standing on the shore of a sea and he was watching a tsunami come into the mainland. And the people all over the place were running and screaming and crying and praying for God to intervene. And the man just stood there watching the tsunami come in. And someone ran up to the man and said, hey, why aren't you running or screaming or praying? What are you doing? Just watching the tsunami. And he said, silly man. I don't believe in tsunamis. Most well, sadly the tsunami didn't care whether or not the man didn't believe in him and the man paid the price for simply standing and watching the tsunami roll in. Well the name of Jesus is like a tsunami. Like it love it or hate it. And his name will have major implications in my life and in your life. Whether you say you believe it or not, the reality is the existence of the baby king has implications for you. The name of Jesus will provoke something in you. Admittedly or not, Whether you hide it deep within or you let it out and wear it on your sleeve. Either way, the name of Jesus provoked something in you. And it's usually one of three things. Heedlessness, hatred, or homage. Heedlessness, hatred, or homage. Well, let's look at the text this morning and see what the name of Jesus provoked. 2,000 years ago. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Let's stop right there. Already we have some really interesting things happening in this passage. But first and foremost, we have to consider this one question. What did the arrival of King Jesus provoke in the wise men from the east? What did the arrival of the king provoke In the wise men from the east, it provoked them to gather gifts from their personal treasury. We'll see more of that later on. It provoked them to gather gifts from their personal treasury and to travel 800 miles. Now, if you don't know how far 800 miles is, that's like from here to Atlanta. They gathered gifts from their personal treasury. They traveled 800 miles and they did so on horseback and camelback. They gather gifts, travel 800 miles on horseback and camelback over the course of a month. They gather gifts, travel 800 miles, horseback, camelback over the course of a month in rain, hail, cold and heat, all to worship the king. And here's the kicker. We don't even know if these dudes was like Christians or not. If they were coming to follow the king in, for all of their life, we don't, we don't really know much about these dudes. All we know is that they saw the star, the name of the king, provoked them to travel 800 miles with gifts on camelback in the rain, and the slow snow, heat, whatever the, the conditions were over the course of a month. Now, guys, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees because some of us who call ourselves Christians. See, we don't even know if these dudes were Christians. But for some of us who call ourselves Christians, we won't get up in the morning and travel five to 10 miles in an air-conditioned Honda Accord to come worship King Jesus together. But the existence of the king provoked in these dudes action and worship. And so my question is, what does the name of Jesus provoke in you? You see, we could talk about how these wise men were ancient religious astrologers. That's good. That's great. We could talk about how these wise men came from Persia or Babylon, which is modern day Iran and Iraq. That's cool. We could talk about the influence that the Hebrews had on Persia and Babylon during their time in exile. That'd be great. We could talk about the symbolism of stars and what they represent. That would be great. But what we really need to talk about this morning from this passage is what does the name of Jesus provoke in you? And like Caleb said a few weeks ago, for the vast majority of us, it's apathy. It's apathy. Am I talking to somebody this morning? Apathy is a lack of interest, a lack of enthusiasm or a lack of concern. Some synonyms are indifference. And unresponsiveness and the follow-up question is why why does the name of Jesus provoke apathy in some of us why are so many of us who call ourselves Christian generally apathetic at the name of Jesus that's a true statement many of us who call ourselves Christians are apathetic about the name of Jesus why Well, here's the long and the short of it. it. Many of us who call ourselves Christians are generally apathetic because we are riddled with unbelief. We are riddled with unbelief. Now, I don't mean wholesale unbelief. I simply mean we have a contaminated faith. We have a contaminated faith. You see, we believe God for others but we can't believe God for ourselves. Who am I talking to right now? See, we can believe God for others, but we don't believe God for ourselves. We believe that Jesus is good, but we struggle with believing that that goodness is extending to us. We believe that Jesus died for sinners, but we have a hard time placing ourselves in that category. We believe that Jesus is sovereign, but we worried in a mug about tomorrow. You see, when you have a contaminated faith, apathy will reign in your hearts. Because when we don't know what to do, most of us don't do anything. When we don't know what to do, most of us don't do anything. And we don't have hard convictions about Jesus because we're struggling to believe and apply the implications of his life to us personally. And so that breeds within us. Apathy. Who I'm talking to this morning. Come on. But the truth is that the name and the person of Jesus has great implications on our lives, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not. Now, I can't, I can't convince you any more than I could have convinced that man who was staring at the tsunami that it's real. You feel the winds and the waves, Jesus. You can't even say the name of the year without acknowledging King Jesus. I can't convince you that Jesus is Lord. That's God's work to do. John 6:29. All I can do is give you the gospel truth about Jesus and the gospel truth about you and pray that God lets the seed take root, germinate, spring up and grow into a tree. Here's the gospel truth, that Jesus made you to worship God. That's why you were created, to worship God. But sin has influenced us to worship, hear me on this, sin has influenced us to worship mediocre majesties. Woo. Instead of worshiping the one true king, we worship mediocre Majesties, mediocre kingdoms, and that's a a, a disrespectful affront to God. And you see that emptiness that we feel, the emptiness that we feel, the lack of satisfaction that we feel is a result of misplaced worship. It's a result of misplaced worship. We're worshiping the wrong thing, and as a result, we're doing damage to ourselves. It's like vacuuming a lawn. You see, a vacuum cleaner is built to do what it does, but if it does what it does in the wrong place, it will do damage to itself. You see, a vacuum's not built to vacuum a lawn, it's built to vacuum a rug, and in the same way, we were built to worship, and we're gonna do what we do, we're gonna worship, but if we worship the wrong thing, we, like the vacuum, are gonna do major damage to ourselves. We wonder why we're so jacked up. It's because we worship things that never satisfy, and then it burns us up, and we have a lack of trust in anything but ourselves, and then we engage in self-worship. Oh. And then, we, and then we let ourselves down. Oh, it's a big, vicious cycle. I'm getting ahead of myself. When's the last time you seriously took time to consider the idols in your life? The things that you're worshiping, maybe unwittingly. When's, oh, or maybe you don't even know. What are the, when's the last time you took time to consider the idols in your life? You know, the the things that make you disproportionately angry, right? When you're so mad, but the the crime didn't fit the punishment kind of mad. What is that? That's idolatry. That's idolatry. That's an inflation of self-importance. What about this? What people must approve of you before you feel a sense of accomplishment? That's idolatry. That's idolatry. What secret pleasures are you unwilling to give up, even if it's for your own good or the good of others? It's idolatry. Worship that thing. Maybe. What's so important to attain or maintain that you're willing to hurt people to get it? I'm not talking about self-defense. I'm talking about something that you have that is so important to maintain or or to attain that you're willing to hurt somebody else in order to get it. What is that thing? It's time that we reckon with these idols that never satisfy. And it's time for us to get our fill in Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter six, verse thirty five. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said so much in that little statement. He said, I am the bread of life. And then he says this, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. Why? Satisfied. And then he said, and no one who believes in me means actively placing your trust in me not just believe as a mental assent or an acknowledgement of existence no that's not belief that's not that's not this kind that's not biblical belief biblical belief is an active placing of one's trust in the one who believes in me will never be thirsty again why satisfied You know, it's funny. We as Christians find ourselves not satisfied in Jesus because we find ourselves taking sips of some other idolatrous cup. We take a sip here and a sip there. and We're we're filling ourselves up with things that don't nourish, things that don't satisfy. We're hungry because these idols serve us water that can't quench and bread that doesn't truly fill. God hates the sin of idolatry which is basically at the root of all sin and will punish sin and sinners in the lake of fire. Yet the love and kindness of Jesus provided a way to pay for your sin. Jesus's sacrifice upon the cross and his subsequent death and resurrection as a substitution for you and for me makes you right with God. It makes you right with others, but it makes you right with you. All of a sudden, you're okay being who you are because you're covered by the blood, striving for his grace and mercy in your life, and you're allowing him to transform you because you know that you are a son or a daughter of the king. Whoo! come on, you Jesus substituted his life for sinners like you and me and absorbed God's wrath for all who would turn from their idolatrous sin and trust in the name of the resurrected Savior. Listen to this. If you turn and trust in Jesus, you are an adopted son or daughter of the king. Come on, turn and trust. Turn from these idols and trust in Jesus. Do it now. No reason not to. Don't look to the left or to the right of you. I'm talking to you. Have you placed your trust in King Jesus and have you turned away from these idols that will never satisfy? It's time to admit it. Don't let the speed of life cause you to forget this truth. That if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you are an adopted king of the most. High. You are an adopted son or daughter of the most high. Loved, cherished, disciplined, redeemed, and made whole. The only appropriate response to the name of Jesus is gratitude and worship. Stop pretending that you don't need them. Stop pretending that you don't need them. And if you don't know what to do with him, I'm telling you what to do. Turn and trust in Jesus. Pour out your soul to him. He's a teacher that will never tell you that you are no good. He's someone who will never make fun of your body composition. He's a good teacher. And he takes your shame upon himself on the cross. Come on to Jesus. I pray that God would decontaminate your faith so that you can have a proper response to the name and work of Jesus. Now, speaking of proper responses, if we are too full of pride and self-sufficiency, our response won't be that of worship. Our response will be that of hatred and fear. That's exactly what we see King Herod's response. Matthew chapter two, verse three. It says when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. King Herod and all of Jerusalem were having a fear based response to the news and name of King Jesus. They were both. Provoked at the acknowledgement or the at the knowledge of King Jesus's arrival, they were both provoked. And the question is why? Because the name of Jesus signaled the end of their respective reigns. Woo. The King Herod has signaled the end of his reign as the King of the Jews, and no king likes to give up his reign. That's why he initiated the murder of all the baby boys two years old and younger and later on in Matthew chapter 2 verse 16 through 18. A king must eliminate all threats and that's what King Herod was attempting to do. But did you read the text slowly because it said all Jerusalem was disturbed along with the king at the acknowledgement or the recognition that King Jesus had been born. So you would think that Jerusalem would have been excited that their king, their Messiah, was finally born. But that's not the case. It says that they were deeply disturbed along with King Herod. You see, no one likes the end of their reign. Not kings in authority and not ordinary people who worship their own autonomy. No one likes the end of their reign. And when something threatens the end of your reign, you seek to eliminate it. And if you can't eliminate it, you ignore it. And if you can't ignore it, you defame it. And if you can't defame it, you try to convince others not to place their faith in it. Is that one of you? Is that you? We all, no matter how pious we may seem on the outside, have a tendency to place ourselves on the throne over and against the Lord, don't we? See, I know some people who they're humble and They're they're pious. But in reality, it's a cover for self-worship, a cover for self-preservation, a cover to keep themselves at arm's length from King Jesus because they don't want King Jesus to have too many implications. Newsflash, too late. Jesus's existence has implications for you and you cannot keep it at arm's length. It's all up in your face. But we place ourselves on the throne and you know what we say? We say it's my wants, my needs, taking care of me first, my money, my life, my power, my freedom. I laugh at these things. My money, you ain't got no money, B. Your money can be gone tomorrow. You have no money. My life, you don't even make your heart beat within your chest. You, t- you could be dead and gone in five minutes, but you say, my life, you talk about my freedom. You know what's crazy about the, the idea of freedom? We're slaves to the thought of freedom without ever truly attaining it. You look at your life and tell me that you're free. What you free from? You got credit card debt? You free from governmental laws? You free from sin? You ain't free, be? <laughs> you ain't free. Freedom is purchased on the cross for those who turn and trust in Jesus. I'm getting ahead of myself again. Idolatry and unbelief is at the root. But with the arrival of King Jesus, he reminds us that all we think is ours is really his. Everything we think, mine, 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 mine. No, it's his. Our life squarely in God's hands. Our needs are secured only by the sovereignty of God. Our freedom only by blood, by grace through faith. King Herod is provoked because the rightful heir has arisen. And Jerusalem is provoked because daddy came home. They're both provoked. And some of you are provoked because for the first time in your life, you're realizing that you're not in control like you think you are. In the words of T.J. Dennis a few weeks ago, y'all ain't nothing but little Caesars. And Herod is about to feel just how little he really is. Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. So he, King Herod, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, and in the land of Judea are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Jerusalem and said, go search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me. So that I can go and worship him, too. (laughs) Stop right there. King Herod is planning his defense of his kingdom under the guise of worship. You see that? He makes it seem like he wants to worship King Jesus. But in reality, his desire is to king to kill the, the toddler king. His desire is to kill the toddler's king. And notice why he's doing it. He's doing it as an act of self-worship and self-preservation and loyalty to himself. Oh, it's funny that we would kill the son of God in order to preserve ourselves. We'd kill the king of glory in order to preserve our, our autonomy. Herod is acting like a wolf. You remember our mini-series, The Anatomy of a Wolf, from the book of Jude that we studied just several weeks and months ago? And how we talked about wolves try their best to fit in and do what it do the whole time. They have ulterior motives to harm you and for self aggrandizement. But they come in by stealth with winsomeness and pseudo authenticity. Sounds like Herod in this passage, doesn't it? He's acting like a wolf. He is a wolf. He has wolf like tendencies, maybe with with these wise men. And what's crazy is that the wise men don't even perceive the heart of Herod. They're probably like, yeah, bro, I got you. I'll let you know as soon as we get there. I'll let you know, no doubt. I got you. We're going to find them. It ain't a thing. But what did God do in verse 12? Look at Matthew chapter chapter 2, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. (laughs) God was having none of it. He was like, nah, be. Jesus was going to be protected for the time being and Herod was going to be left hanging. But let's look at what happened when the wise men arrived at the home where the toddler king was residing. And Jesus is probably about two years old at this point. Matthew chapter two, verses nine through 11. After hearing the king. They went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Oh, guys, what a scene this must be! Can you imagine what it must have felt like for Mary? To be chilling in the crib and up rolls up these wise men, these Persian or Babylonian religious astrologers roll up to the crib and they're probably mob deep too. Because when you take an 800 mile journey, you don't just go, you don't just go on a small number. You go on a big entourage. And newsflash, we don't know if there was three of them. We don't know how many of them there were. It just happens that there's three gifts. And so we tend to say that there was three wise men, but we really don't know how many there were. So imagine Mary sitting at the crib and these these wise men, this big entourage of people roll up on horses and camels with all these gifts. They enter the house and they fill with joy and they drop to their knees. All these men drop to their knees in the presence of a woman and her toddler baby. And they bow in worship to the baby king, King Jesus. Oh, Apathy is one response to the king when we don't know what to do with him. Hatred is another when we're too full of ourselves. But homage, homage is the only proper response. And these men proved to be wiser than all of Jerusalem at that time. But for you and me, we don't need to bring these types of gifts to Jesus like these wise men did. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. They're great gifts. Gold is the precious metal of royalty. Frankincense is an expensive incense of prayers and worship. Myrrh is a lavish scented narcotic used to prepare bodies for burial. But that's not what Jesus wants from you. And that's not what Jesus wants from me. He doesn't want gold, frankincense and myrrh. He doesn't want you to go into your treasuries necessarily. Psalm 51 says this. Verse 16 and 17, look at your cross-reference sheet. You don't want a sacrifice or I would give it to you. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. What does Jesus want from you? It's found in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. Jesus said to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love him with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Pillar church, just like these wise men, you have been warned. Don't go back to what you were. Don't go back to apathy. Don't approach the king with hatred. Worship the king for who he is and what he has done for you. Take time to remember who he is and what he has done for you, namely the giving of himself upon the cross 2000 years ago to redeem a people who didn't earn it or deserve it of their own accord or volition, but purely out of the goodness and the grace and the love of his heart, substituted himself and absorbed the wrath of God for us who believe, who would turn and trust In him, if you feel the burden of your sin, not because I've categorized you as a sinner, no, but because you truly feel the burden of your sin against a holy and righteous God, this good news is for you, that Jesus will cleanse you from your sin. And you could be made right with God again. I beg of you, turn from your sin. You don't have a good reason not to. Turn from your sin and place your trust in King Jesus. My prayer is that your faith be decontaminated and that the name of Jesus provokes in you, worship. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Do work in our souls. Don't let us get up from these seats the same as we were when we sat down, but what we solemnly reflect On the goodness and grace of King Jesus in our lives. And would we forsake all other gods and worship you alone? And it's in the mighty, mighty matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.